1: Welcome back to open the voice gate rewinding and rewatch episode 32 covering Mercury rising 2012 on March 31st, 2012 from the Deauville beach resort in Miami beach, Florida. We are members of the voices of wrestling podcast network. You can find us on the voices of wrestling feed or on the dedicated open the voice gate feed on all podcast platforms and applications. You can follow us on Twitter at open voice gate. If you would like to donate to the show, Click the link in the show notes. It'll take you to our Red Circle page where you just click the red button and you can do a one-time or reoccurring donation. No obligation whatsoever, but we certainly appreciate it and like to thank our previous donors. I'm one of your hosts. It's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears, joined alongside my co-host as always, Case Low and Case. We're almost three years down, three years or two years ago with uh, the Mania Weekend as we are closing out their time in Miami Beach we're closing out a WrestleMania weekend, and what an interesting time the wrestling world was in in 2012.
2: I, I can't believe we're through another WrestleMania weekend. It seems like these shows and then the anniversary show are obviously like these milestones that drink at USA Hits every year. And we've only got two more WrestleMania weekends left, and I look ahead to the shows that are, are coming in the future, and Mike, there's just not that many shows left.
1: Yes, we have. After this show, there will be only 17 Drengate USA shows left. It's a good feeling. are in the backstretch. It's a
2: good feeling.
1: Yeah, yeah. We have one. We have two more anniversary shows, two more WrestleMania weekends, and this is this is a pretty remarkable show that we're going to talk about here. But we're starting to get to a point now where they'll never be south of uh, of of New Jersey after this show, with the exception of Mania weekend in New Orleans when they close out the show we're we're getting to a, a bunch of lots and we'll get more into that as we wrap up the show. But 2012 for DG USA and 2012 for WrestleMania weekend was like such a big time, like a big moment. And it's interesting to see DG USA's WrestleMania weekend come to close.
2: Well, and as you mentioned at the top of the show, the wrestling industry, as we know it was changing rapidly at this point in time, you could, you can make the argument that this is the time and place where the wrestling industry as we know it began to form... Because, I know two weeks ago, we were talking about the formation of Mad Blanky and World One International and the Jimmies and sort of getting our bearings as to the current Drangate landscape. Last week, with Alan Forel, among other things, we talked about the indie landscape of the Ring of Honor WrestleMania weekend shows. We didn't touch on the Ring of Honor 10th Anniversary show, which happened in March of 2012, but we will actually circle back to that on our next set of shows as it pertains to a larger issue at hand. But this week... We are bouncing around the earth, really, some Japan notes, some notes in America, some wider context of what was happening in the wrestling world in the spring of 2012. And Mike, we start with the Wrestling Observer Newsletter on February 13th, 2012, with the note that New Japan Pro Wrestling has been sold, and Dave writes... Even though it may appear on the surface that Japanese pro wrestling as a business hit rock bottom and is on a slow ascent, the selling of New Japan Pro Wrestling, the strongest company, for only $600 or $6.55 million last week, told a tale about an industry hanging on. No companies are doing well right now, which some are blaming on economic fears spurred by the earthquake and tsunami and overall mentality in Japan right now that people are afraid to spend money on anything that isn't essential. Plus, attempts of, at expanding, whether it be Dragon Gate USA, New Japan in the US, Pro Wrestling NOAH in Europe, and All Japan in Taiwan have not taken hold. Takayani Kidani, whose Bushiroad Group publishing purchased New Japan last week from Yuke's, talked at length about this uh, about this week about future plans. He noted New Japan was running about 130 house shows per year, and he wants to cut down on that number. He felt the wear and tear on the talent was shortening careers. There are flip sides to what is the correct number of dates to run. The fewer shows you run, the longer it takes for young wrestlers to gain the experience necessary to fully comprehend working at the top level. The more shows you can have more experience, but the physical demands are harder. The best way to do it, which is almost impossible, is for the wrestlers who need experience to work a lot more dates, but the wrestlers who know what they are doing to work an easier schedule to prolong their tenure at the top. Kidani also noted that he wants to make the annual January 4th show at the Tokyo Dome to be even bigger as the company's focal point of the year. His goal is to make it not just a Japanese wrestling event, but a major annual worldwide wrestling event, And Kidani said it's important to improve the TV relationship with TV Asahi and to get television back on at a decent time slot. Now, Mike, with all of that in mind, the TV Asahi note, Wrestling King or Wrestle Kingdom rather, becoming a bigger global event, and the idea that the stars at the top of New Japan's card need to stay healthy to have more prolonged, prosperous careers. I don't know about you, it seems like Kidani has accomplished all of that in his eight years running the company.
1: Yeah, so a uh, friend of the show, fellow podcast, and the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network, uh, WrestleNomics did an episode, by the time this came out, it was a couple of weeks ago, but when we are recording this last week, talking a lot about New Japan finances. So really remarkable what all Kidani has accomplished. So the, the purchase was at $6.55 million dollars. Just to give you a sense of what their revenue was since then and their net income. Of course, net income is everything after paying everything, revenue is money coming in. Their net revenue for Bushy Road Sports Division, which pretty much at when this happened in twenty twenty, would have fiscal year twenty twenty, was almost all entirely in New Japan, forty seven point nine million dollars of revenue. And then their net income, they would have made back that deal just from income stance by the year two thousand sixteen. So like that, they were able to make a million dollars in revenue or net income in 2013, 2.8 in 2014, 1.3 in 2015, and then 2.5 in 2016. There's their 6.55 million already back there. And then they would make more money over the next four years. And it's estimated that in the fiscal year that ended in July. So a lot of it was during the COVID era. They still cleared $2 million in cash. So that's, they were able to do that. The TV situation is always an interesting situation in Japan where they're only now really able to get moved to a better time slot right now on TV Asahi. I think they are moving somewhat earlier. I I know that they were up until two 2.30 a.m. recently, but they're talking about moving it to like 11 or 10 o'clock. So, Across the board, Tadaki Kadami, for the goals that he had in the short term, he's accomplished nearly all of those with New Japan. It's interesting in 2012 this felt like such a boisterous statement case that I was like, no way this is going to happen. Like, like this is going to be like such a crazy thing, but building up Russell kingdom, doing a somewhat successful international expansion, and then reassessing the relationship with TV Asahi. And then the network that came with the new Japan world. I, I think there's like, I would say that there's a legitimate case right now that as promoter Tadaki Kadani should be put in the wrestling server hall of fame.
2: Oh God. Yeah. I, I don't even think it's a question. It's, it's remarkable. And you know, I was—this is not a New Japan podcast, but I don't really get a chance to talk about New Japan all that often, so I will say this briefly. I was preparing an article ready to dance on the grave of New Japan in August of this past year, and the Summer Struggle in Jingu show was just good enough that I held off on it. But I, I maintain a lot of the thoughts that I had when I was preparing this article— that Joe Lanza on the Voice of Wrestling flagship echoed what will now be a few weeks ago, talking about the change of an era. Because now we are looking at a company that, although Kazuchiko Okada is still a top star and Hiroshi Tanahashi is still a top star, the company is now revolving around Tetsuya Naito. I know there are people perhaps listening to this, uh, certainly people within our community that base their entire personality around liking Tetsuya Naito. That's cool, it's not really my thing, I don't like him as a wrestler really, He's especially not as a top guy. So I have been detached from New Japan really since they began running the empty arena New Japan Cup and ever since. But there's something to be said about the 8 year run of greatness that they had, which I think echoes and tops, I won't even say arguably, I think it tops the All Japan Pro Wrestling run from 1990. When you look at Mitsuhara Masawa defeating Jumbo Saruta on June 8th, 1990, to the Toshiaki Kawada Tokyo Dome win in 1998, and it all mirrors New Japan, because I will now read from the February 14th figure for Weekly, in which they say... And what would have been a shock, what would have been a huge shock, were it not for Dave Meltzer reporting the possibility last week, the record-breaking IWGP Championship reign of Hiroshi Tanahashi finally came to an end in Osaka this past weekend at the hands of the 24-year-old Kazuchika Okada. This was apparently the plan before Okada made his return on January 4th at the Tokyo Dome, but his meek microphone performance challenging Tanahashi combined with the unimpressive return match against Yoshihashi caused New Japan Brass to rethink their plan. They must have been impressed with his performances throughout the January Tour as they stuck to the plan in the end and put the belt on the former Toriumon graduate. This is a huge gamble, and even though it, isn't, it wasn't at the behest of the new ownership, it certainly kicks off the new era with a bang. Okada's a long way from being over with the fans, but a spectacular performance winning the belt would go a long way towards helping the cause, and from all accounts, that match was indeed spectacular. So, Mike, February 12th, 2012, which, by the way, do you know the significance of February 12th?
1: February 12th? Uh... No. It is my birthday, Mike
2: Spears. It is my birthday. Oh, um, it's, 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 I, I feel terrible. T- now. T- terribly offended that you would not know your podcast co host's birthday. But uh, February 12, 2012 began really. I think the era of the wrestling world as we know it, there is definitively a pre-Okada and a post-Okada universe, and we are now living in the post-Okada universe. And to add on to his greatness from the March 4th figure for a weekly, they say in one of the finest IWGP heavyweight title bouts of all time, Kazuchika Okada put to bed any doubts or reservations anyone could have about him with a performance worthy of the greats of New Japan's past, Okada and Tetsuya Naito, two of New Japan's brightest young stars, were given the ball in the main event slot of the March 4th Cork and Hall Show, the 40th anniversary show, mind you, and they ran with it, delivering two spectacular performances. Now, Mike, I know you're a little bit detached from New Japan in its current state. I am as well. But what did you think about the Okada title win and the ensuing Tetsuya Naito match?
1: It's something that is, like, the era change. And I remember, like, explicitly, like, where I was during this. And I remember also because Jay, uh, I heard DG, and now uh, Dragon Gate, was talking about, like, oh, yeah, I wanted to keep him in contact because really for a lot of people who did not pay attention to TNA, they knew of him as the guy that moved to Mexico to train with Ultimo at age 16 and then was his contract was sold to New Japan, so it was like, oh, this is like a Dragon System graduate, and suddenly he becomes the biggest star in Japan, <laughs> and like it's like knocking it out of the park after how Russell Kingdom went, and it's also something that like they used to do their their anniversary shows at Korokin. Now I think their most recent one they had was at uh, Sumo Hall, like just like another state of like the the rapid ascent of New Japan or return of New Japan to its former glory in a lot of ways.
2: Can you imagine that company running their 50th anniversary show in 2022 in Cork and Hall?
1: I mean, they might have to given COVID, (laughs) but...
2: (laughs) Ah, the wrinkle that I did not consider.
1: But no, like, honestly, you could probably make the argument that they should run Budokan for their 50th anniversary, right?
2: Or the Dome. I mean, why not?
1: Yeah, like it's just like remarkable how this is, and then really the the two people at the forefront of this was Okada and Naito getting elevated because Tanahashi, as we talked about before, was the person that the company put on their his back for a while, and like a lot of his best years were not done under the Bushi Road era. A lot of it, like his youth and his uh, body, was given up well before that.
2: Yeah, this is a uh, a monumental moment. I mean. The uh, February 12th title win is maybe the weakest Okada-Tanahashi match that they had, but the ensuing Naito-Okada match from March 12th, or I'm sorry, from March 4th, rather, 2012, uh, may be the best Tetsuya Naito match I've ever seen. Uh, it's certainly either that or one of the Kenny Omega matches, perhaps. But uh,
1: I-, I think the G1 Kenny Omega match probably is my favorite.
2: Yeah, that's, that's fair. I guess I gave the uh, Okada match there. 4 and 3 quarters and I have given Naito matches five stars uh, and thanks to his opponents but uh that is a conversation for another time. So that is a little <laughs> bit of what is going on in Japan at this moment in time. We have seen again the world
1: is changing in Japan. Just before we move on like it should be noted that at this point definitively Dragon Gate is no longer the number one fan f- uh, western fan followed promotion in Japan. Like this definitely is like the final part of it. New Japan, as we saw through the Observer Awards in 2011. From now on, Dragon Gate will, will have appearances, but it won't be like how it was 2008, 2009, 2010. I just wanted to make sure to put a clear delineation point
2: there. No, it's it's completely different. And On top of this, you've got Yuji Nagata going to all Japan at this time, which was a huge deal. Big Japan is becoming more and more based around strong BJ style, which is always a plus. There's just a lot going on. And, and Noah is hanging on. I think you could say that safely in 2012 that Noah is there. I mean, I really like 2013 Noah, and I loved Noah in 2014. That is a that is a year of pro wrestling like Noah that unfortunately, uh, this came up in the Voice of Wrestling Slack a few days ago, that the great daily motion purge of late 2014 cost us, yes, a lot of Dragon Gate footage that I have still not seen recover to this day, and I just, I would, you know, you would think the network would Help us out with that, but they haven't. But there is so much NOAA in 2014 that is just gone, and specifically the Global League of 2014, which had Chris Hero and Masato Tanaka and Yuji Nagata and Shane Haste, and I believe Colt Cabana was in that tournament among the NOAA brass. It's it's a shame that it's gone, but that's, that's stuff for later on in the show. But a name that I just mentioned is very relevant. As the uh, February 21st figure for a Weekly noted, that Chris Hero... Has been signed by the WWE and given the name Cassius Ono with the initials KO, playing off of the Ring of Honor nickname, the Young Knockout Kid. Hero reportedly had an issue with his first set of WWE medicals due to his high testosterone. Uh, to God, what, uh, what, what, what word are we looking at here, Mike? Do you see that in the notes? E-
1: yeah, epitosterone. Thank
2: you. Dr. Mike Spears, uh, his high testosterone to epitosterone ratio, normally that is a sign of steroid use, but in Hero's case, he is actually one of the rare individuals who has a naturally high TE ratio. Mike Spears, your thoughts on the name Cassius Ono?
1: Oh, I still think it's one, like, I know why that's a name, I still think it's a terrible name. Like, I think it's, like, one of, like, the worst names that that era of WWE developmental had was Cassius Ono. Like, I think it's terrible. I realize, like,
2: just- oh, go ahead.
1: It just doesn't roll off the tongue well. it has a bad cadence. like the only nice thing is that people could chant Ono oh, or k o, but I mean, like that's where like my like of this name ends.
2: I realize the last name Ono is absurd like it's just it's just not it's either Sonny Ono or Cassius Ono, and uh well
1: Apollo Anton Ono. You're obviously not a speed
2: skater I was, I, You know what's funny is in the back of my mind, I was like, no, I think there's a an ice skater of some sort with the last name Ono, but I I really wasn't locked in on that. So shame on me, Mike Spears, for not knowing that. It's <laughs> That's
1: but, what I'm here for. That's what I'm here for.
2: But Chris Hero doesn't necessarily seem of the descent of someone with the last name Ono. So I realize it is absurd, but I've always not minded the Cassius Ono name. I've kind of had a soft spot for it. I don't know why. I realize it's a flaw but it is one of those things where I'm like, yeah, like it's not any worse than Chris Hero. I mean, if his name was Chris Hero at FCW, if that was the name he was given, that would have been clowned on as well.
1: Oh, no, I mean, that, that's entirely fair. That's entirely fair. Like, the, like, Chris Hero is very much an indie name. So, like, I, I, and it's not like his shoot, they would ever use his shoot name. So, Cassius Ono, I mean, him being like the boxing, like the athlete, athletics fan, having like a something based off, off, off of Cassius Clay, and then oh no, then you get Kano. I mean, but like Cassius Oliver, Cassius, uh, there's not really a lot of oh last name. Cassius Orange doesn't work.
2: <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs>
1: So I'm trying to think of, like, other, like, prominent last names, like Oliver is the one that's coming to my head right now, which tells you where my brain. at. Well, they at. could have
2: done a father-son program of Cassius Oliver and Jordan Oliver at some point. Down oh, behind. that would have owned. That would have been – that's – God, that's, that's so good. Why do I not have the pencil somewhere? But as F4W would go on to report – uh, he's reporting to Florida Championship Wrestling, and not surprisingly, there are no plans to team him up with uh, the former Claudio Castagnoli, who's now working as Antonio Cesaro in developmental. Obviously, they were partners at the Indies with the Kings of Wrestling. And it just, through Hero's two stints in that company as Cassius Ono, it seems crazy. That we only got, what, one match with the Kings of Wrestling together? Is that it just seems like a missed opportunity. The only time they teamed was when it was CM Punk and Seth Rollins versus Cesaro and Ono on an early NXT taping. That was a dark match that ended up, I believe, airing on the network years later, but it did not air at the time.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's been on like DVD sets since then. Yeah. Like it. it... It emerged, but it was not, like, initially out there, which is a wild thing considering the four people involved and how that would have been at one time considered a dream match. And it's, like, a big, like, IWA Mid-South match when you think about it.
2: (laughs) We can thank Ian Rodden for that match when it comes down to it. We can can (laughs) thank Ian for that. But speaking of FCW, our final kind of timeline note before we get into the Newswire stuff, from the March 26th Wrestling Observer, and there's a lot here, I'll try to break this up to the best of my ability, But Dave says the entire WWE developmental system went into a panic on March 19th with word that Florida Championship Wrestling, the company's only developmental territory, was closing up. None of the performers were aware and were caught off guard when the news broke on our website, even though rumors had been abundant for some time because it was well known that Triple H put in charge of developmental was expected to make major changes to upgrade the system. WWE responded to the report first broken on our website saying an unreliable news source published an erroneous report that WWE was shutting down its developmental facility. But as Dave would go on to say, they heard from a uh, spokesperson from Bright House Sports in Tampa, which is where FCW aired that after the March 15th tapings, they were told by WWE that they would be shutting down the operation and moving everything to Stamford, Connecticut for the time being while they reevaluated The WWE developmental system and a story published on WWE.com triple H denied the story saying that FCW is not closing and that they are ramping up the entire developmental system. But as Dave says, but then in denial pretty much hinted of the changes. There are two triple H quotes here. One quote There are plans in the works, but nothing definitive I can discuss right now. Shortly after WrestleMania, there will be a major announcement about our developmental system, end quote. And then once again, Triple H saying, WWE's developmental system is being revamped, but not shut down. If anything, it's going to get bigger and better than ever. WWE's developmental cultivates the future talent of WWE, but by no means is it going to get smaller or shut down. So, off the bat here, Mike. Let's break it up here.
1: <laughs> there's the, there's a lot to get into <laughs> about this.
2: We saw in I believe 2007, out of nowhere, out of the snap of the fingers, Ohio Valley Wrestling was uh, essentially dismissed from being paired with WWE. In 2008. Deep South Wrestling was told their services as a developmental territory were no longer needed. at The snap of the fingers. And four years later, it seems like the same treatment is given to FCW. Yet it seems to surprise everybody involved with FCW. And they tend to think that this is uh, the the dirt sheets writing this rather than reliable history saying that this is how things go.
1: Yeah, and that's kind of like a, a thing like Steve Kern should have known that that. Like as soon as he took the job, this was not going to be like a long term thing. Just ask uh, Jody Hamilton and Danny Davis how that went for them. Like, and this would turn into like a pretty big drama thing about current's uh, relationship with WWE, if I'm right. Like, what, weren't there lawsuits involved with SCW? I know there were some with Deep South.
2: If they if they end up coming there later on, and they don't have them in the notes right now. I mean, what what were the what were the Deep South lawsuits?
1: It was something about, like, breaking a contract.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that w- it, w- it wouldn't surprise me, but I'm currently, at the moment, we're recording unaware right. if FCW is ever tied up in, 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 in any sort of litigation.
1: But it's something that, like, as soon as Triple H took over developmental, like, it's just natural that people are going to want to develop their own thing. Uh, John Laurinaitis famously moved them all down to Florida because uh, he liked Florida, <laughs> like, basically. Well, like, that's why, it, that was justification there. But it, it was always something that whenever someone got in charge of this division, as we've seen through the company, they want to put their own fingerprints on it. And FCW, they were at an abandoned grocery store. That's where FCW facilities were. And, I mean, you, you like, look at the people that were part of FCW and the people that were brought into NXT and how things change, It very... Uh, like it's something that like a lot of things really needed to look at the at like how they like change it because everything thing that like they announced or this this is like one of the few things that happened nearly immediately where they have the performance center where they do started where they started to film out of full sale and it's one of those things that you you know like if you're coming in in this department and this was like your big test here you're going to want to have like your fingerprints all over it and a lot of triple and doublespeak from Triple H there. You know, I mean, was it revamped? Yes. Was it was it shut down? No, it was not shut down. If anything, it's going to be bigger and better than ever, arguably. And then develop, WWE Developmental cultivates the future talent of WWE. Whoa, that sentence is back is sore for carrying a lot of water right there. And, you know, it's just like an interesting time. And I remember when, like, this all happened and, like, people who weren't talent under FCW and that weren't necessarily brought over to NXC because there is a cleanup that happens in developmental. Like talked about like all the things like, oh, are we moving or who's moving and who's not moving, who's staying aboard, who's not staying on board. Just as kind of a remarkable time period.
2: Yeah, and it becomes even more remarkable given the future events with these next two paragraphs, the final notes that I have on FCW where Dave says the long-term plan is to build a much stronger developmental territory with more than just a gym and a small television arena, but an advanced state-of-the-art facility similar to the current top MMA gyms. The gym would not only include wrestling training and promo training facilities, but also higher non-wrestling coaches and more structured training regimens similar to that of a real sport. And then D- Dave goes on to say... There had been a lot of conjecture as to what would happen to developmental. The company had done some experimental television tapings late last year at Full Sail University in Winter Park, Florida, about an hour from Tampa, which came across better than the tapings currently in the gym because of a better better setting with bigger crowds and a much better crowd reaction. But that was also based on having mostly students from the school coming for a one-time thing, which might be difficult to maintain interest among college students if they come back every three weeks. There had been talk that if the tapings, uh, th- there had been talk that the tapings would move out of the gym studio they used in Tampa to that location. Even if FCW was kept, the current location has been tough because it's such a dead crowd. So it appears nobody knows how to work for a reaction and thus makes things more difficult for the talent to get, e- uh, get evaluated as being essentially mechanically sound. So Mike, revamp that'll (laughs) happen revamp (laughs) fcw turn it into something new build a state-of-the-art facility and move to full cell university that sounds familiar
1: and and if that was only it then you could say that the legacy of development under triple h was an unbridled success you know but everything past that that i think now everyone's able to call in doubt in recent years but yeah no and you i as someone who would watch fcw up on daily motion funny enough uh yeah, like, like, they're not wrong. Like, I mean, the former facility, like, how, how much— fo- I know we've talked about this before, but you've watched some FCW, right?
2: I, I have watched a lot of late 2011 and the final days, the first six months of 2012. I've, I've watched most, if not all, of that FCW footage.
1: And, and it had its own charm, but nothing here is, is, like, wrong, because it was, like, a dead crowd. They're performing in front of, like, the background instead of having, like, tarps up or having scrims out were old WWE like massive posters that they would put on the side of arenas. So you have like this big photo of like uh try to think of someone who who they would have a big photo of of like Batista for like WWE backlash or Capital Punishment. Which by the way, that's a fucked up pay per view name <laughs> that they have.
2: Yeah, that is uh, uh, that is where your co-host, me and Aaron Bentley, can, uh, can certainly shake hands and, and maybe advocate <laughs> against a pay-per-view named Capital Punishment. Maybe any sort of Capital Punishment should be absolutely right, abolished. Right. Uh, but uh, yes, there was a, a unique charm to the FCW arena and the idea that uh, low-key, under the name Caval, might be wrestling TJ Wilson or even Brian Danielson in front of a Triple H pay-per-view poster that was blown up to a scary size. There was a real charm to that. But certainly the early days of FC—or or a full sale, at the very least, proved to be a better environment.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it all lines up. It all makes a lot of sense, I would say, like, how things went there. And I would say that moving to, like, the, to like its own mini soundstage was a, was a huge success. And really, at least if you want to look at it on, like, the goals set forth initially for uh, NXT, what would become NXT in the Performance Center— they did everything there. Like how Kadani said what was going to happen if New Japan would come true over the next few years. Everything happened initially from NXT, from FCW to NXT happened as the way it did. And I feel like if you're just looking on those terms, it's considered a unbridled success, as I said before.
2: Well, I noticed uh, Train Stars was not on the list of things to do <laughs> when closing down FCW. It seems like, I don't know, the Performance Center has been around, what, six or seven years now? And I think... As a culture, we are way too kind about the Performance Center and the unbridled failure that it has been when it comes to making stars or training people that weren't already successful prior to being signed. It seems like a, a massive oversight that I think that the community has a, at, at large has given a pass to what has really been, I just think, an abysmal failure. But hey, it's a nice, it's a nice facility. They built a nice gym.
1: You know how I feel about, uh, like, rookies and talent development. And you you you, may, you raise a pretty good point, because I think you could argue that they have not developed talent, they've just taken talent from elsewhere. Like, I feel like that's very, very clear there.
2: It's crazy like, they named the pay-per-view capital punishment. I can't stop thinking about that. <laughs> that just, oh, yeah. Uh, that oh, just, yeah. like, sinking, like, oh, my God, they did that, didn't they? Uh, well, we've seen what would become the growth of New Japan. We saw Chris Hero get signed. He will later get fired and appear on Drangate USA shows and then get signed and fire again. And we have the formation of what would become NXT as we know it. But Mike, we are now ready to dive into the Gabe Sapolsky Drangate USA newswire. Are you ready to do that before we break down Mercury Rising? I
1: haven't asked you this in a while. Is it actually the newswire or is it still the News Express?
2: It's the email news blast conglomerate it's weird because a lot a lot of the stuff that was posted to dgusa.tv was reiterating stuff that was emailed out to people but then they would just say check your email they wouldn't repost a lot of it on the site so once we hit 2013 there's a point where i have all of the emails and i have saved them obviously for a moment like this but we're kind of in the latter days of a lot of Gabe's newswires were being like, check your email for this, and then it's like, well, that doesn't, Gabe, that doesn't do me any good for a retrospective podcast, and you really should have thought about that when you were trying to sell tickets to these shows in 2012. <laughs> but well, <laughs> go ahead
1: well, when you're when you're struggling to fill uh, to fill the second row at your WrestleMania show.
2: <laughs> yes, maybe maybe his priorities were in the right spot, but we do have a few newswire notes, uh, notably February 20th. Sabu versus Sammy Callahan in a no-rules fight was announced for March 31st in Miami. This was billed as the main event of this show, much like Pac versus Lowkey was billed as the main event for Open the Ultimate Gate. I do not believe this match announcement happened during the Super Bowl halftime show, but <laughs> it is certainly a match that would fit that billing if it was. So we have a lot more to discuss with Sabu and Sammy Callahan later on in this show. We also have the February twenty fourth note, and I will read this verbatim because I I find it just the the verbiage of it to be very interesting. We had major yeah, yeah we had major breaking news on match announcements and talent in yesterday's email news express. Which there you go, Mike. It was the email news express. Gabe goes. Thank you, thank <laughs> you. Gabe goes on to say it starts with the fact that DGUSA officials have become very frustrated in trying to put together the annual six-man tag team match at Mercury Rising on March 31st in Miami. This is due to the stable chaos in Japan. DGUSA officials have noted that Shima and Akira Tozawa are the first members of each trio. Now both Shima and Tozawa will have the opportunity to put their teams together. It is now in their hands. There has already been lots of movement in Japan on this. So, what do we think about this quote, Mike? That Gate USA officials have become very frustrated trying to put this match together in essence because of the booking that is happening in Japan.
1: I mean, that sounds like a giant subtweet um, that he's not clued in on what what the alignments will be by WrestleMania weekend, if you ask me.
2: I think that is exactly it. And as I, I look, we've we've kind of monitored it as we've gone along, you know, I I think Starting after the first anniversary show, there were less Japanese talents on the shows. And then you look at the spring 2011 triple shot right after WrestleMania weekend where you go, huh, not a ton of Japanese guys on this show. And then as we proceed out of Miami, you will go, oh, my God, there's almost no Japanese talent on this show. And I think there is a friction point here with Gabe and the Gate office of trying to get guys on these shows and trying to book them in a way that upholds the Japanese booking, which became very difficult at this time period.
1: Yeah. It's something where it took a little bit of deafness and I still don't think it was done completely right, but he was able to get around to having blood warriors as the big heel unit. It took him a bit. You know, I could tell that that was not his plan from how he was booking things. He he had big aspirations for Kamikaze USA, but he was able to get there. This seems like he's kind of throwing his hands up and go like, I know Shima and Tozawa are going to be around. Y'all decide.
2: Uh, yeah, I that's that, that's I think that's exactly what it is. Those are the two guys that he knew he would have on a bi-monthly or tri-monthly basis. And, you know, your Mochizukis or your Hulks or your Dragon Kids or your, your Shinos or your Doys, who knows? And that, that seems like game... It, that's, it, that's exactly it. It was the newswire equivalent of a subtweet.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's one of those things that... We'll talk more about this at the end of the show but he, naming those two people, those are like the two people that throughout the rest of the promotion until they stop bring, flying people over are like your third points, are Tozawa and Shima.
2: On March 16th, the third match added to the Mercury Rising show was the Pac Invitational Aerial Elimination Match where Gabe says Pac is the premier high flyer going today. Last year his rivalry against Ricochet elevated Ricochet to be one of today's top stars. Now Pac is looking for a new rival. He will handpick the opponents and the participants in this elimination match. Pac has already entered himself and Rich Swan, and we can can confirm right here that Lince Dorado has been added by Pac, and then we get the note. On March 30th, in which Pac has added Pinky Sanchez to the mix as well as Samurai del Sol. So, we came into this show with the idea that Shima and Akira Tozawa would be manning the six man tag match uh, sides, if you will, and the idea of the Pac Invitational Aerial Elimination Match with Pac versus Rich Swan versus Samurai del Sol versus Lince Dorado versus Pinky Sanchez. And, Mike, with that in mind, and I, and I will tell our listeners right now, things will change. But with that in mind, I am ready to break down Mercury Rising 2012.
1: Yeah, things will be changing nearly immediately as we get into the show itself. So Mercury Rising 2012, as I said off the top, March 30th, 1st, uh, 2012, and the Deauville Resort, dearly departed Doville Resort in Miami Beach, Florida. We open up with John Davis versus Bobby Fish, and this was the opening of the show bobby fish got the big upset in nine minutes and 34 seconds gained the fish hook and being able to roll into it after after john davis was going for the three seconds around the world and what easily was like the big surprise result of this weekend
2: did you feel like bobby fish was weirdly over in this match
1: yes yeah yes he was he was much more over than john davis like And being in the crowd, like, almost a distracting thing where I kept on, like, finding out where I was in the crowd during the show. If you notice someone in a red Texas Rangers baseball cap case across the hard cam, yeah, that was me.
2: Mike, Mike, Uh, I'm curious, just because it pertains to literally the day we're recording this, were you wearing a red Texas Rangers hat with the 2010 World Series patch on it?
1: Yes, I was. Yes.
2: The uh, well, sorry, first of all, sorry for your loss. Uh, I, I I was thinking we don't talk about those. <laughs> I was thinking of you earlier today because the website that I buy my hats from, not lids, as we discussed last week, but the website Hat Club, was selling Texas Rangers 2010 World Series patches today, or the hats with the World Series patch on them. They are selling that red alternate hat in a uh, yeah in a, a in my size. I thought about buying it, but then I thought that might be an insult to you, Mike.
1: <laughs> I I mean I will take the world series the two world series texas rangers were and to my grave you know well like that's that that that's my personal cross the bear but uh no i would not have been angry by it but it was one of those things like during this match being in the crowd i was like maybe this was a part of like my in the period of or while this was happening uh, on why i was kind of turning on john davis and why i kind of came away from DGUSA with a more negative opinion of john davis and others because the crowd here did not care for john davis and they loved bobby fish
2: I got to go back to the Rangers for one second. You know, yes. as we're recording, All right. as we're recording this tonight, the Los Angeles Dodgers have a chance to win the World Series. Now, by the time this comes out, the result will be one way or another because game six and possibly game seven will be played. But even though I've been a little bit detached from baseball to say the least this year, haven't watched a ton of it. The idea is sinking in that one of my teams could win a championship tonight. And I've I've never seen the Pacers win a title. The Rams lost in the Super Bowl two years ago. But the Dodgers have a shot tonight, Mike, and it's it's a special feeling, and I'm I'm giddy for this game. I know the Rangers broke your heart, and honestly, mine, because I love those teams so much. But I, I I don't know your teams. Have you have you won a championship in your life?
1: Oh yeah, uh, the Dallas Mavericks in 2011.
2: <sighs> See, you've got one. I don't have any, and I I just I, I'm I really hope the Dodgers can pull it off. I want the T-shirt and I want the hat, and I'm sick of the Dodgers losing World Series. So I, I'm just. That's on the brain tonight, but as for the Bobby, Bobby Fish versus John Davis match, this is a, it's weird, you know, we've talked so much about how John Davis, it almost like deserves these bigger opportunities. Like, I love the way Davis has been handled, but he was really needing that one match to break out. This was not the match because this was no. one, it was the Bobby Fish show. Now, there are a few things working against Davis here. One this was just Bobby Fish was over to a weird degree, and John Davis was hated to a weird degree. So he had the crowd working against him. It was also now the third match in four shows where a Dragon USA show opened with what felt like an evolve style match. You had Low Key versus Hulk in California. You had Low Key versus Fish in Hollywood, Florida. And then obviously last night was Rich Swan versus AR Fox. Not exactly an evolve match, but here. It's back to that Evolve House style, more grappling than it is flying type of match. And I think the odds were set against Davis there, because now Davis becomes like the poster child for what might be wrong with Dragon Gate USA. But I was just left super unimpressed by both of these guys here. I didn't like this match at all. I went two and three quarters on it. Just a flat opening match in terms of the performance, but a weirdly hot crowd in the mix.
1: Yeah, 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 like, this is, like, it's something where knowing your audience, knowing what you're doing is an issue. This was a match that been on an Evolve show, there would be no problem, that, and I think everyone would think a lot higher of it, but doing, doing this as an opener on one of your WrestleMania shows, and having, like, this much of a stylistic difference, and with one guy, Bobby Fish, this is his first weekend on DGSA cards. Like, throwing it out there against someone like John Davis, who is not, like, one of their big stars yet, but it clearly is something that, you, you look at how he's booked, you look at the crowd reaction, I think any book would be like, okay, we might have something here if John Davis. You throw him in this match and you book him to lose? Like, it's just one of those things that's kind of absurd. Like, I was two and three quarters as well, because this was not a technically, like, wrong match, it just was the wrong match and on the wrong show.
2: Yeah, it's, it, it's an issue with Dragon at USA at this point in time. Gabe wants to do the Evolve merger, and it makes sense, but... Then you're put in a position where you're paying, you know, tickets to a Dragon Gate USA show. You want to, ultimately, the red canvas means something. And Bobby Fish versus John Davis is just not, it's just not that. It's not what I want to see on the show. And I like both these guys.
1: And, and I think that that's a fair thing to kind of look at the show overall. Did not feel like a Dragon Gate USA match. Sabu versus Sammy Callahan not feel like what a Dragon Gate USA match should be. <laughs> uh,
2: it's not what a Dragon Gate USA match should be. It did feel like what Dragon Gate USA became.
1: Yes, it did. It did very much feel like that. Air Air Fox and Air Cannon, that's fine. The six, the the, the what the Invitational became, that's fine. The tag team match, they're building up the scene, okay. And then the rest of it, like this, like, you had two matches on the show that would be signals of what the promotion will come, and it's not what people were buying in for. And I think that's very clear, and and laid bare on what should be one of their biggest shows of the year. And that's not how you want to kind of close out a weekend, in my opinion.
2: Just a bad opener. I was not a fan of this.
1: Yep. Afterwards, Bobby Fish says he wants an evolved title, a, t- a title belt that would not be happening for a while, as you've said many
2: times. It would happen a <laughs> that, that, year from now, and by that point, Fish is, I think, co-headlining a Ring of Honor show at the Hammerstein Ballroom.
1: Right, 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 right. We, we saw that paid out for Gabe with that. And then we had Johnny Gargano standing by some chairs. Uh, tonight's about the Freedom Gate. He knew what Chuck did and he should have seen it coming. He doesn't get why Masadi is insulted. And something that I really want to like put the point on here, he keeps on saying sol naciente, but he says it like with like the weirdest Cleveland slash Southern accent ever. Sal Naciente. Like, have you noticed, like, how weird he was saying Sal Naciente in this? Because it started to bug me in this promo.
2: I wasn't going to bring it up, but I'm so glad you did because I honestly wasn't (laughs) the Sal Naciente. I wasn't sure if he was mispronouncing it. Or if it was an accent or what the deal was, but I was I wasn't admittedly wasn't glued on this Gargano promo, kinda just had it onto the background. And I kept on looking over and going, like, that doesn't sound right. What is he what is he <laughs> saying? Does he not know the name of the move? But it it is uh whatever that Midwest Southern accent is, and it uh it was really distracting. But he put the move over big.
1: Yeah, I mean they put like that's one thing about the show is that, that we'll bring up when we enter the title match. The Sol Naciente is like look like it is treated as a huge thing, and he did it there. He just did it by making it sound like that he was like, What's that there? Sol naciente, you got there. Like that's what he sounded like to me. And that's a and that's a very weak attempt at a southern at, at a comical Southern Ohio accent.
2: It sounds just like Gargano, though. Sounds just like John Boy.
1: John Boy, John Boy. Uh then we go to the ring, Pat comes out, he you know and the first thing that struck me is he came out with a World One International shirt, and boy, I did not realize, and it finally snapped the place when he was coming out to the ring, that World One Internationals logo really looks like a royalty company. Yeah, like an online realty company that's going to sell you that's selling a timeshare <laughs> in Monaco.
2: Yeah, that's entirely fair.
1: <laughs> so, so, so we have a realtor uh, pack coming down here, and he says that he's thankful for last night's match with Loki. But and he's so thankful for it that he wants to do it again this weekend. And he says that since Shima's a hundred percent, he wants into the six-man match. And then Chuck Taylor comes out and Pac literally says, "I can't stand you. I can't stand you, and I can't stand the ring of you." And just leaves. Pac's like, "My my my time here is done." And and then Chuck says he's claiming the invitational for himself and he's going to do it when he wants. So here's the big card shakeup. Pac is now in the main event for Shima, and now Chuck Taylor is in control of the six. What would become the Six Wrestler Invitational?
2: Yeah, there is kind of a what 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 started becoming a reoccurring trend with Gabe here of doing rematches immediately, and it it plays more so into the evolve booking later on in the the summer of 2012. But there is definitely an emphasis on like, okay, let's do Pac versus Low Key again. People really like that. Let's give it to him again. Let's give the people they they need to like something. I guess they like that. Let's try to do it and uh a fine segment, you know? Again, Pac said Shima isn't 100%, so he's going to take a spot in the six-way. Chuck Taylor comes out. Pac smartly leaves the ring. And we get the Kentucky Gentleman Invitational that would happen later on in the show.
1: Yeah, and it, it, it's something that it's like the way they built up the six-man match. So we talked about how Akira Tozawa and Shima had teams, and of course Shima instantly picked Ricochet and Pac, and then or he first picked Ricochet, and then Tozawa picked Hulk, because you got the tag teams right there. And then everyone was trying to go for Loki, and Loki says that he would join Mad Blanky. I will be a, a fighter on the stage with Mad Blanky, and then Pack joined up with that. So you already have like this weird feeling to the six man tag. That's only just heightened by the fact that they announced it at the show that it would be Pack and the six man versus Shima, which was something that just was very odd about this match you know, even before we get into it, like the build up to this was so much more like you look at how Rodin versus blood warriors, that's a natural match to happen. You had you had warriors versus world one and, and Arizona made perfect sense. This one was really like, well, we have to do this match and we had to find some way to build this match up, And it was built up like for a lack of a better terms and part of my French built up like a dickhead, like just terribly built up for what is the trademark match for GG USA. And, and gave over a Weekend.
2: Yeah, it's just, it, it just, it feels like the Drang at USA that would ultimately be its demise. Like, this show felt familiar.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was interesting, because for a while, we were like, oh, is this the downturn? This is the downturn? No, this show is the start of the slope. Well, it's the, it yeah, really it's the
2: last leg. I think once we talk about the Michigan and Chicago shows coming up, then it will be very apparent that it is the downturn.
1: Yes. And then we get into the next match. It was Air Fox versus Eric Cannon. And Air Fox won via disqualification in 11 minutes and 3 seconds when Simi Kalyan hit the ring through a chair at him during the low main pain. And Case, I don't know about you, but I thought this match like really ruled up until the finish. Yes! Like I was really into it. Yes! I like, am- Eric Cannon owns in this match.
2: I am so glad we're on the same page. Mike, this match was so good up until the finish. And I don't, like, the finish was a bummer. It wasn't it wasn't awful, like, it wasn't an offensive non-finish, but... It was deflating. The match was so good that it deserved the clean finish. Like, when you're talking about the hidden gems of Gate, it's easy to be like, well, Shimon Ricochet versus Speedball, so, like, that match doesn't get talked about enough. This wasn't... Even with a clean finish, I don't think this would have been a notebook match, but this no. is like, oh my god! Like, this was so much better than it had any right to be, and we are now seeing a fully formed grown-up version of AR Fox, where he is really putting his talent on another level. And Eric Cannon, who I've always been a little bit critical of, I've never loved him, or even necessarily liked him at some points, Eric Cannon has been a good addition to the Dranget USA roster. He holds his own, he does a good job, he does what's asked of him. And I thought he and A.R. Fox were were on their way to a three and a half, if not with a clean finish, three and three quarter star match before the DQ.
1: Right, yeah. Like I was at three and three quarters, and then this the finish happened. I was like, oh, three and a quarter star match because it's just like ah. Uh... It was that deflating cuz like this match rocked for like 11 minutes Colt Cabana and-
0: Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150 then place a $5 wager on any sport you'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome and if you think the fun stops there the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc
1: commentary doing comps calling uh eric cannon the babe ruth of wrestling because you don't think you'd be a, a great athlete but eric cannon is and then, Like, the crowd was so into it. Like, especially, like, there was, like, Eric Cannon's straight punch that the crowd just goes nuts for. And everything is, like, well, things like this is AR Fox. Like, you watch this match versus AR Fox in 2010 and 2011, you will see, like, oh, yeah, no, that's AR Fox and not just someone who would later become AR Fox. And, like, Eric Eric Cannon, I think I'm a little bit higher on him than you are, but he absolutely owned in this. And I feel like he was a lot better in this match than a lot of people give him credit for. Like this is like an air cannon that I would gladly have my DG USA every day.
2: I think the exact sequence is cannon goes for his right hand punch, which looks great. And then he super kicks Fox, who I think was on a knee and then picks him up and does the total, total anarchy and gets like a deep 2.9 count. Yes. And the crowd explodes. I mean, these guys are so over and it goes back to the Bobby fish thing earlier. It's just funny given the match we're about to talk about. This is a crowd that wanted to love this show and through two matches it seemed like they really did. And honestly, the DQ finish, it was deflating, but Fox was going up to the top rope and then you see a ca- a chair get launched from somebody that was off camera that just wipes out AR Fox and it ends up being Sammy Callahan. But even that looked great of just this errant chair flying at the head of AR Fox. It, this was a really fun segment.
1: Yeah. It, and that chair throw, like it comes across a lot, It came across a lot better on tape than did in person. Cause you, you saw Sammy come out with the chair and throw it. Like, this wasn't, like, like the idea of the chair out of nowhere and you pan over and you see Sammy Callahan was right there with the chair, like, getting the DQ. That was really cool. And that kind of plays into another thing that we were just talking about, how Gabe likes doing rematches. They make a big point that AR, that, uh, AR Fox and Sammy Callahan are kept apart here, but they can't be kept apart. So Gabe's already like rene- reneging on his thing that he had right there.
2: I understand that Gabe has to sell tickets to Evolve shows at this point in time too, and that was never an easy task ever, unless you had Adam Cole headlining your shows in 2018 and 2019. But I don't know. It just seems like the AR Fox versus Sami Callahan feud, which started on, an, on a It USA show on the second anniversary show. It just seems like that, should have concluded on Dragon Gate USA. It seems like that should have maybe been on this show. You just shelved the Sabu deal entirely, and then from there you have a really satisfying match, but instead that is the Evolve 12 main event, Fox versus Callahan which we'll talk about as we sort of get into our next weekend of shows and the string of Evolve shows that ran between It USA in Miami and It USA in the Midwest. It's just a bummer given that this feud started on it USA, that it didn't conclude on It USA as well, and this would have been the weekend to do it. Instead of worrying about a cooling off period or whatever other gay verbiage you wanted to use, just do the match here. Just, just do it. It would be nice.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you've built it up there, like, of all of that, sure, but no, it should've been here. I'm totally with you there. Uh, so Sammy threw that chair there. He grabbed the microphone and he said he glad he's glad that he had a dip in. And he talked about him having a dip, which, boy, that microphone must've been really gross with someone who had <laughs> just a giant dip in their mouth. And he says it's going to end tonight. One on one, with Sabu lights out. We got Sabu, and then we had the street fight. Sabu defeating Sa- Sammy Callahan in 17 minutes and 59 seconds. Case. 17 59 with an Arabian face blaster through a table. And this is the first time I watched this match because I know partway through the match, I was like, I'm done with this. And I went to the bar and bought a uh, vodka tonic and drank a vodka tonic at the, at the bar in the lobby of the Deauville rather than watching this entire match.
2: This match.
1: Terrible. Terrible I match. I mean,
2: what? It's, it's one of my favorite bad matches I've ever seen. Because I had not seen any of these shows prior to doing it for this project. Weirdly, just Miami 2012 was just a lapse in my Dragon Gate USA viewing. So, I had not seen this before. This this was just such a bad match. And it's fascinating. Because, like we talked about, the crowd is so into the first two matches. And as soon as Sabu hits the ring, they do not care. They give this match nothing. There's Like, this match was bad no matter what. It's in front of, say, like a peak PWG crowd. It's bad, but it's not that bad. But this crowd checked out on this match immediately. And it made that 17 minutes, that almost 18 minutes, seem like an eternity. Because just from move one, they did not like this. They did not want it. And the Sabu run, just an abysmal failure. Oh,
1: it's something that it's so just frustrating, Case, watching this. Like, I know I like the crowd. Like, why should the crowd care? You know? Why?
2: It's, it was so, like, I had so much fun watching this match because it was just, it was so bad. Like, you can't even really comment on too many of the spots because I don't even think they did that much. It was just a lot of just them existing I mean, there's a point where they go for like the chair battle spot, and it's it, like Sabu actually hurts his hand, and it sucks. Sabu, at one point, I put this gif on my Twitter at underscore in your case, where Sabu goes for the triple jump moonsault. Or I'm, I'm sorry, just goes for like a triple jump dive to the outside. It, from the chair to the ropes, just, just gave up, just nutted himself on the ropes in a way that I've never really so seen bad. anyone do. <laughs> Like it's like he like mid jump decided, nah I'm good. I don't wanna do this. Just gave up on the attempt. It was insane. Like it was the most low effort brawl to what should have been a heated feud that has ever existed.
1: It, it, it it's something that it's also like not only like it was just bad a crowd the crowd brawling where like John Davis comes out partway through cause DUF starts to beat down and they brawl into the crowd outwards and then brawl back in and the crowd could not care. So I want to, I want to ask you
2: about that spot. I was going to bring that up. So, so like you said, so it, it, DUF is beating down AR Fox Sabu comes out and then John Davis comes out and it leads to Fox and Davis brawling with Cannon and Sanchez all over the all over the ballroom. And then at some point, like you said, they go back in the ring And start brawling again, and what I'm curious to know is that really felt like an audible to me. Like, maybe they went to the back, and then Gabe said, you guys have to go back out there and get back in the ring. Now, I know Sabu ends up doing a dive onto everyone, so I'm sure that was a planned spot, but the idea of them getting back in the ring, and seemingly overstaying their welcome, I guess if you could argue that in this match, where... It was just—it was not a normal brawling segment, and to me, it felt like it was really on the fly, and that Gabe was trying to salvage any sort of reaction he could get.
1: I mean, I think that that's the case. It's just something that, like, on a show where the crowd gets up again pretty much for the remainder of the show, with the exception of one match, it just was, just like this was falling flat here, and this should have been the sign of sabu in this promotion was a terrible idea and should never have happened to begin with and the fact that it did happen i mean it's this is why this was like one of my least favorite things in the promotions history this is why when it showed up i was like oh same." oh sabu versus dof of AR fox is my least favorite thing in the promotion and re-watching it it's utter trash and like he had to do anything he could to try to get a crowd invested in it because the crowd just did not care and it's fascinating in how bad it is if anything
2: The, uh, look, well, let me, there's two ways to take this. Let me give my positive thought on the match before I bury it another six feet under. I have to say they've called, or I guess one of the announcers, Lenny Leonard, has called a lot of great matches. The Lenny Leonard Colt Cabana performance here to keep a straight face and to make this sound like a compelling contest. Bravo. Bravo. I thought they were excellent in this match because they really had to work to not actively bury this. And they ended up selling me into the idea that, Hey, maybe this isn't too bad. And then the finish happens, which we'll talk about. But I, did you, did you notice that at all that? I thought Colton Lenny were really strong.
1: Oh yeah. No, those two had a, like a real fun chemistry, even like in, throughout the show. I feel like that the two of them were a blast together. So yeah, no, absolutely. Like it, the, I have this as a dud in my notebook, in my notes. But, like, hearing them talk about this was not a dud, it just was a bad match. Like, that was, that felt flat in every way.
2: I have this as a dud, too, on the simple notion. It, it Maybe it was worth a half star, maybe it was worth a star and a quarter before the finish. I did not know that Sabu won this match until I watched it. I thought, <laughs> there's no way Sabu will win this. The entire point of this feud is for Sammy Callahan to eventually beat this guy to become the new era of Sabu. There's no way Sabu wins. And then Sabu does an Arabian facebuster off the top rope through a table and pins Sammy Callahan and Mike I was floored. I had to pause the show to let it sink in that they pinned Sammy Callahan in 2012 with Sabu.
1: Oh, it's something. I
2: could not (laughs) believe it. I did not know that was the finish. I could not believe it.
1: It, It's something that, like, when you let go of this, is like, who did this help at the end? No one. How could people take uh, anything with Sammy Callahan any bit of seriousness now, Case? He's lost his
0: abu.
2: This is far and away the worst booking decision the company ever made. And I know that's a bold take. And we are—we still have two years of shows left, but I've—I've I've seen 98% of the matches on those shows. I—I I know what's coming next, and I know the major booking implications. And I know you could make the argument. Well, and I was one of the way that made, made the argument. You know, you should have done Mox versus Brody on Mox's last week, and you should have really wrapped up Kamikaze USA better. You should have, uh, maybe not done the Paul Lund and Brian Kendrick stuff. I look, all of that—it's so much less offensive than Sabu pinning Sammy Callahan. I could not believe it i was stunned at this result mike i was stunned it
1: there's a reason why i hate this so much case and why this happened i started groaning and you're like maybe this is okay i really like duf right now how can you care about duf now
2: no it's a dead act it's exactly it i don't care anymore i i mean i just i don't know how i could it it is it was catastrophic i just i i don't know I don't know if I hated this more than Moxley versus Homicide at United Finale because here's the thing: like, I had fun watching Callahan versus Sabu. I there was a part of me that loved watching this match. Moxley versus Homicide and Aries versus Swan, or was it Homicide versus Swan? Was that a single? Homicide
1: versus Swan. Yeah. Yeah,
2: that's right. Um, this was this was worse than Homicide versus Swan. I don't think this was worse than homicide versus Moxley cuz I really hated that. I still get upset thinking about that match. This was it was like a weird version of fun bad where it wasn't the traditional version of fun bad. It was like this new alternate universe of how hard things <laughs> could suck and I really liked that. And then the finish, like I said, it just it blew my mind. I couldn't believe it that Gabe Sapolsky, who knows what he's doing, pinned Sammy Callahan in 2012 with Sabu. Mike, I watched the show like four days ago. I watched this in one sitting. Normally, I break the show up, you know, I take a break at intermission, and I come back either later on in the day or the next day and I finish up the show. I watched all the this show in one sitting, but I had to pause and collect myself after this match because I couldn't believe the finish. It's just it's something where like
1: it's interesting bringing up homicide moxley because that is the only comp you could really put on this because even like the paul and teddy hart stuff like lived in its own kind of little universe in a way but this is like someone that sammy callahan stood proud and strong at the end of 2011 like he like arguably a lot like like 2012 in dragon gate usa should have been the duf show of how things ended you know Look, well, like he got his definitive win, he beat his rival, and then only three months later, completely killed the act. And at least John Moxley and, and and of homicide, like that was like it also was weirdly like in its own universe in a way. Maybe it is because Moxley was someone who did not work with a lot of the Japanese talent. But you have like these guys in there and it's like someone that's like intricately linked into the promotion, completely defeated and made look like an absolute chump by seven years past his prime Sabu who had one of the worst performances I've seen Sabu ever have.
2: It's just, it's remarkable. It's like we talked about earlier with the idea that this should have been Callahan versus Fox, and I would have preferred it have been Callahan versus Fox, but let's just play along with the idea that they're booking Sabu through Miami. And I, I I think you said it to me. There was a note of the observer that's from, March, I think, or at least after the California shows, where it said Sabu was supposed to be on Dragon Gate USA shows going forward. Now, I don't know if that means that he was finishing up in Miami or if Gabe saw this and said we can't book him after Miami, but there was at least a a notion that he might have continued after this. But let's just take the idea of Sammy versus Sabu. It's happening in Miami. They're going to do the blow off. At the very least here, you book Sammy to win, and then at Evolve 12, which is headlined by A.R. Fox versus Sammy Callahan, which A.R. Fox wins, then at least A.R. Fox has pinned the guy that pinned Sabu, and maybe you make two stars out of it. Instead, you made zero.
1: DG USA, we made zero stars out of
2: it. <laughs> I gotta give him Gargano. I would love to run with that tagline, but they did get Gargano.
1: I mean, only each week Johnny Gargano finds more ways to get away from God's light.
2: <laughs> so after the match.
1: <laughs> so after the match, Sammy snapped attack people at ringside, including Johnny Vandal, who he put into a stretch muffler. And then we went to backstage with Masao Yoshino, who said both in English and in Japanese, that he wants to be the Freedom Gate champion. And then we go, we cut to the ring as Lince Dorado and Samurai Del Sol come, come out for... Their match, like we don't know what's going to be happening now because the Invitational is taken over, and these were two guys in an Invitational. Apparently, they had a book on the fly and say, "You two guys are in, in a match here." But then Chuck Taylor comes out barefoot, by the way, just with his tights barefoot, and attacks both of them to start his Invitational na- match. He announces the Chuck Taylor Invitational. Shima and Rich Swan come out for the save. Chuck Taylor grabs the microphone as he goes back to the entrance way, and he says, "I hate luchadors." And that cues up El Generico as a surprise appearance to make this a six-way match. It was Shima versus Rich Swan versus El Generico versus Chuck Taylor versus Samurai Del Sol versus Lince Dorado. El Generico got the win after a brainbuster into the t- corner on Lince Dorado.
2: Mike, it had been a while since I have seen an El Generico match. I, I, I'm sure I probably watched some at the start of uh, quarantine when we were all very scared by this virus that we've just become comfortable living with. Uh, I, I was going through some classic PWG matches and I'm sure I came across some Generico there, but it had been a long time since I had truly watched Generico. And I have to say him making his entrance gave me chills, him running down the aisle and attacking Chuck Taylor I was like, oh my god, like, I, this, it's El Generico. Like, I forgot, I love El Generico. I don't care what Sami Zayn is doing. I don't care about his Ringer of Puff piece that was written. I love El Generico, though, and I was so excited to see him back in the fold after whatever it was that we just watched.
1: Yeah, it was just, like, such, like, a vibrant thing, and this was, like, a good surprise here. This was, like, a, a thing that happened, and you're like, oh, you weren't expecting this. I remember, like, in the crowd, no one, everyone knew he had a match at ring of honor earlier that day they did not expect el generico to show up and then when el generico showed up, everyone became unglued for it because they knew immediately who it was
2: yeah so generico had worked like we talked about with alan last week he worked a last man standing match against kevin steen on the first ring of honor show and then on the second roh show that weekend he worked the opener against jimmy jacobs and lost and that sort of you know, it was it was an idea that, well, Generico's not really working with a Sinclair deal. Uh, that's weird. He was also The thing is, they did Generico versus Loki on an Evolve show, and that match was announced before this weekend, which is really weird, because the idea was that Generico was a Ring of Honor guy. But, as it was told, the deal between Dranget USA and Generico, uh, for Ger- Generico to become essentially exclusive talent there, was put together that afternoon of the show. So this was new to everybody, and then Generico came out and was the star of this match.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it was one of those things that was, like, exactly, like, the thing that was needed to happen with this match, and it really turned into, like, a really fun six-way match, and it's something that, like, with Shima, like, you were able to hide Shima in a certain way, that I felt like that he was integral in the match, but he was not overwhelming. You know, like, like like you were able to have Shima and you're like, oh yeah, she this match, but Shima didn't really have to do anything. And because it became like the El Generico show. Like in twenty twelve, who would you who would you call on for like a kind of match like this out of the blue and know like, hey, this can make the match and give this thing some buzz? You call up El Generico. And it knocked it out of the park in that regard.
2: Yeah, this was this was phenomenal. This was really, really fun. And you know, I it's just I, I liked everybody in this match. I thought this was a three and a half star, really fun for what it was style of match.
1: Case, we've been eerily like dead on with each other on every single star rating on this good, show. Good,
2: good, because we just Three and We half just stars. recorded a uh, weekly update where we were yelling at each other about disagreements in the Dragon Gate booking, so it's nice to be back <laughs> on the same page with my friend. But what I was curious about was, you know, Samurai Del Sol once again looked really, really good in this match, but I, I don't know. Do you think Samurai Del Sol? cost himself an opportunity to tour Japan after the Masao Yoshino match. Now, the counter to that is that, look, from this point on, he's on a light-speed pace to getting signed by WWE and also being courted by AAA at this point. But it just seems like him being the focal point of Gate USA, like we mentioned when he debuted, he was the highest-paid guy on the roster, and as Larry Dallas pointed out to us on Twitter, he was also getting flown in, which most guys were not. It just seems like a a Drangate tour should have been in the works, but I wonder if after that Yoshino match, he just lost whatever faith the Drangate office might have had in him.
1: I mean, you don't have a match like that with Masai Yoshino and expect the company to be happy with you, you know? Yeah. Like, like there's... In a world where he was able, where he was not on this rocket ship, the... the, the, uh, the uh, samurai del sol rocket ship which has a really wild like next two years and then suddenly he's just in WWE and everyone kind of forgets about him in a way like well well, like I know this is a bit before your time case but it is because I was saying like he was the hot topic on the indies and like the one the hot topics in wrestling for very like his star shown so bright for so short of a period of time that was kind of remarkable like how quickly he was like this but If there was a world, getting back to it, if there was a world where he was able to work like another six months longer than he did for DGUSA, I I think he eventually gets back to the tour, but you can't... like Against someone like Masato Yoshino, you can't do that and walk away with it.
2: Well, so I caught the tail end of Del Sol's time on the indies because, and this is all stuff that will become relevant a few shows from now, but PWG All-Star Weekend 9... I started watching PWG right. at the end of 2012. I, Mystery Vert, Vortex, the original show, and Three Men, Just 3 were my first DVDs. I got them at the end of 2012, beginning of 2013. And PWG uh, All-Star Weekend 9 that year, they not only booked Johnny Gargano for the first time, but on the first show they booked Rich Swan and Ricochet versus AR Fox and Samurai Del Sol. And I did not know who any of those guys were besides maybe Ricochet at that point because he had worked PWG. And I guess I I had seen Swan at that point. I did not know AR Fox or Samurai Del Sol. And they came into Reseda and they changed my life I mean they blew me away and Del Sol has that match which was excellent and it became I mean that's a match that I think even predated gifts on Twitter so it didn't totally break people's brains but I remember that just being like a giant deal and going like who is this samurai Del Sol guy he wrestled TJ Perkins on the next night I really liked that match and then he wrestles, it's AR Fox and Samurai Del Sol versus the Young Bucks on the June PWG show, which is Sammy Callahan's farewell, but also Double Del Sol's farewell. And that match left people going like, oh my god, Samurai Del Sol is the future. Like, I don't know how it was, because I wasn't even connected to The Observer, or to Pro Wrestling Only, or like the Voices of Wrestling Alan Forel universe at this point. I was on a wrestling form that was very much WWE and TNA centric. And I was at this point kind of becoming the flag bearer of limited Japanese wrestling knowledge, but I was up to date on the indies and I knew the indies really well at this point And me, just like you guys have to watch Samurai Del Sol. Like I know what's going on on Monday nights is cool. I like CM Punk too. I have a Dean Ambrose avatar. I get it, but you guys have to watch Samurai Del Sol. This is like nothing I've ever seen before. So I caught the tail end of it and it just seems like, I don't know, at this point, Dragon Gate was very open to the idea of having foreign wrestlers and American foreign wrestlers And Scott Reed does a tour later on in this year, which we will discuss <laughs> in depth, of course. It just seems like if Scott Reed's going on a tour, Samurai Del Sol should have probably gotten that phone call as well. But maybe after that Yoshino match, he was deemed dangerous and, and never made the flight over because of that. It was just something I was thinking about watching this match.
1: So, while you're talking, I looked up all the Samurai Del Sol's matches within Evolve and, and also DGUSA, and the people that he's put back into the ring with that are what, what we consider native talent is he gets in with Shima in Michigan then it is the end of the year with Tozawa and Maraha Yasapa. and then the next year it is Ada and Rio Saito again So that definitely tells me that they kind of shied away from him, at least with Japanese talent. Because Tozawa and Shima, as we mentioned, they wrestle with everyone. Uh, They had AR Fox in the match with him. Or El Generico, who would have faced uh, Mariah Yasapa a lot in Japan. But it, it definitely seems like they moved him away from the Japanese talent for the most part.
2: Yeah, I it's it seems like a trend that was inevitable after that Yoshino match. So I'm I'm glad we're on the same page there, Mike.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's something that also remember Gran Akuma. Gran Akuma, like after like the first few shows, like they completely backburnered him and the Japanese wrestlers didn't want to wrestle.
2: Yeah, they found out Akuma was working with a leg brace and I I don't know how they missed it for the first three for the first two shows, but on the third show, the open the Freedom Gate show in Philly, where they crowned the first champion they discovered that Akuma was working with a leg brace and it, for some reason, terrified the, the Gate office. And from there it was like, we don't really want our guys in the ring with Akuma we're afraid. His leg might give out and hurt one of our guys. And then from there, you know Akuma's push ceased to exist.
1: Right, right. And one, one last note about this match. There's a really funny moment where Shima tell, ties the tassels of Jan match maps into the rope, then Chuck immediately attacks him, then Shima feels really bad and helps him out with the tie knot. I thought that was really funny. Like Shima and Chuck Taylor had some good comedy going on in this match. Chuck Taylor doing this whole entire match barefoot without any, like he had knee pads on, but like no kick pads. He just came out basically looking like he had like the bottoms that Masato Yoshino wears. And it was just like a wild look for Chuck Taylor.
2: I just, I would love given the Larry Dallas incident that we talked about last week and just the general tone of the promotion at this time, I would love to know Chuck Taylor's internal monologue about how he felt about Gabe at this time. Because Taylor, Taylor uh, is having fun not on Not good, I can tell you Taylor that much. having fun on this show, but he seems so checked out. And I don't blame him. I do not blame him. Yep.
1: And then uh, we, they got to intermission. Uh, Shima and DJ Hyde announced Media Week in 2013. The biggest pop here was announcing that Chakara would join the two companies. And my God, they gave DJ Hyde the microphone and the crowd actually likes him. Like, I don't know what was wrong with people here. I know I didn't care. I remember I, I went to go talk to Cole Cabana the night before during like his pre-show match about Chris Gethard and about stand up comedy versus watching a DJ Hyde match. I don't know what was wrong with everyone else.
2: Mike, you're not doing this segment justice. And I I just <laughs>
1: It's so weird. It's so weird. I,
2: I need I need the listeners to understand that one, Shima and DJ Hyde made an entrance together. And then they got in the ring with Lenny Leonard, and it is the weirdest image I have ever seen. Now, Shima starts trying to explain that Dragon Gate USA is, uh, you know, uh, growing, and that we're so happy to be here and that we're going to continue the fun next year at WrestleMania weekend. At some point, I think Shima, and I felt bad watching this, I think Shima, like, totally lost confidence of his English and kind of abandoned the segment and just handed the mic to DJ Hyde. But you have to understand that Shima, Lenny Leonard, and DJ Hyde are in the ring at the same time, announcing that Gate USA, CZW, and Chikara are coming to New Jersey WrestleMania weekend next year. And Mike, when they announced Chikara, you would have thought they announced the Beatles. I—I I mean, the pop was was the loudest thing on the show. It was unfucking believable the reaction that Chikara got for the idea that they would be running on WrestleMania weekend next year. Second to none.
1: It's it it it's a real remarkable thing. I. The thing is, like he like addresses his wife and daughter who are watching from Japan, and I'm just imagining like what must have gone through their mind, <laughs> like this show just in general. Thinking about that, yeah, but weird thing. And then in the back, we go with Rich Swan, who's okay with Chuck and Ronan ending because he's with World One International, and eventually he will come for Chuck Taylor. And that was kind of a weird way for Swan to write off all of Ronan in a way, and still help out johnny gargano but anyways then we come back from intermission it is the scene of caleb connelly and scott reed defeating los bendejos with uh, uh it was maricon and bendejo so yeah that that was a thing and uh they defeated them in six minutes and 26 seconds with the obscene
2: i will say about the scene squash i mean los bendejos were guys that gabe used forever as jobber talent in the uh in yeah. the Florida scene. There's a a move there. There's a move the scene did, and I should note Larry Dallas was wearing shades. He was wearing sunglasses indoors to hide. Uh, it, it's it should be noted Chuck Taylor was on commentary during this match, and he pointed out that Larry yes. Dallas was wearing sunglasses indoors. Very funny. There's a move the scene did though, where Scott Reed catapulted one of the Los Pendejos bro- brothers into a Caleb Conley power slam, and I thought that move looked absolutely terindu- tremendous. And this was an inoffensive squash. It just it was there
1: it was there uh yeah and then of course like there's the whole deal about uh Jay rios so that was a bummer on the show as well then we had ex- we had el generico backstage who thanks the fans said that he'll be back anytime and it- it's something that it's been a long time since i've seen el generico and doing like el generico promos i'm like wow he really like toe the line of what would have been super offensive or not you know
2: yeah, look, I, I am not bothered by the generical character at all. I I like yeah. it. I think if he was doing it now, he would get a lot of unwarranted blowback. That is just one of those things, like I some people are gonna choose to take time out of their day to be bothered by that, and I wish they would find better hobbies. Not to say, Oh, we're too soft now, we're this generation. It's not that argument. The generical character you don't need to touch though. It was fine, it worked, and people liked it. Move on.
1: And then we had our first two main events. It was the Open the Freedom Gate title match. Johnny Gargano versus Masato Yoshino. Johnny Gargano would make his defense of the Open the Freedom Gate title with the Gargano escape in 20 minutes and 19 seconds. Really interesting kind of match and not what you kind of expect here. It was a match that I think I liked more on this viewing than I liked live.
2: Yeah, this was a weird match. I think... Like Alan said last week, Gargano works best when he's doing, like, counters and very fast-paced sequences and doesn't really rely on his strikes, and I thought this was that match for a majority of the time. I thought Gargano looked really good in a lot of this match, and Yoshino was there. It's not like he's going to give a bad performance. I... This was a really good match that wasn't a great match, and I don't know why. I wanted this to be better than it actually was, because it had moments where it was really strong, but it just... Right. I don't know. I mean, I went three and three quarters on it. I certainly didn't hate it. Same. Yeah.
1: Okay. Again, again, our ratings are about I'm the really, same. I'm, I'm really curious today. about
2: your rating on the main event, uh, but uh, I don't know. Do you know why that is? It just didn't, it didn't feel like it, it was as good as it actually was. It's
1: something where, like, you're absolutely right. These are two guys that their styles, at least at this time, would be perfect complements for each other. Like, especially given the kind of wrestler that Johnny Gargano was at the time before he became, like, peak Gabe Johnny Gargano in a way. Like, this was a lot of grappling and and really cool arm work early, and they really built up for the Sol Naciente as, like, this killer move that if you go through his history and you go through the results and go by the finishes – Everyone has been losing to the Solnaciente. Their Solnaciente Kai in Dragon Gate USA. It was like when you get locked in. If he hooks you with his his leg, it's over, and it's probably over if he locks you in it this way. But you had that big idea that Gargano fought his way out of it, and then you also had the fact that like Yoshino put on the Gargano escape. Like like this was like a very like smartly worked match. It just did not reach the peak that it could have in a way. like it was a match that honestly, and it's really weird for me saying, you give this match. Another four minutes, you put it into like that final gear where like where like Yoshino is going for the lightning spiral. He he hits like a couple of sling blades, and Gargano is like fighting for like the baby ace crusher, like the 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 uh, slingshot, and that hurts Zona. And I hate to say this, finisher spam. This probably would have felt like a bigger main event than what it was.
2: Yeah, I I loved Yoshino putting in the Gargano escape. I thought that spot was absolutely tremendous. There was just I and I I agree with all your points. I'm let down by this match because it just wasn't what I wanted it to be despite it being a good match. Like, I I don't know what it was. It's just very strange.
1: It's very strange, and it's strange in a way that it's like something is missing, but we can't explicitly say what was missing. (laughs) It's like, yeah, no, no, it's not exactly what it should be, especially for, like, this was, like, after Evolve 10 where Gargano's back goes out, this was, like, the next... This was his first DGUSA defense of the title. And he would not defend the, the, the title in DGUSA again up until July. So, like, this was, like, a chance for him to really, like, put a stamp on it. And then, like, the other thing that kind of hurts about it is that his defense, like, the big buildup for Chuck Taylor, that is not that defense does not happen on a DGUSA show. It happens on an Evolve show. It's just, like, kind of a weird feeling. Shit. Well,
2: they... And
1: we're feeling match, and the rain early feels very weird.
2: Well, Gargano and Taylor wrestle on a Dragon Gate USA show, though. I
1: mean, they do, bits after the, the title defense.
2: Which show is the... I, I'll, I, I'm not going to ask you. I'll scroll through Cage Match right now.
1: Uh, Evolve 15 is the title defense on June 29th, 2012, and then July 28th is his... Next defense within DGUSA against Akira Tozawa and outside Detroit.
2: Yeah, I guess that Taylor versus Gargano match on Dragon at USA is non-title. So, yeah, that's, a, that's another issue. I, I had not realized that Gargano versus Taylor was on Evolve 15. I've watched that show. I have no memory of that match. I know Mike Cruz was on that show, but... Uh,
1: your main man, my, my main cruise. man, my
2: cruise and uh, Cole Cabana versus Cheech Hernandez. Yeah, that's those. I mean, will talk about those shows next week because they pertain directly to the Dragon Gate USA booking. But, huh? Yeah, that is that is an interesting point there. I did not realize that.
1: Just bizarre. And Chuck Taylor's on commentary, and he's real checked out on commentary. Real nihilist, Chuck. Real checked out, Chuck Taylor.
2: As he should be. He's earned it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then after the match, uh, we have. Chuck Taylor laying out Gargano. He still has not put a shirt on. He's still barefoot and then he escapes through the crowd. And then that leads us to our main event. It is the six-way, it, it is the Dragon Gate six-man tag. It is the team of Akira Tozawa and BB Hulk representing Mad Blanky alongside Christina Von Eri with low-key as they go up against the World One International pairing of Pac and Ricochet and Misaki Mochizuki. You can almost do this kind of as like a Blood Warriors versus Junction 3 thing in a way. Like the, like if you continue like this would be, this would be like Blood Warriors vs. Junction Three. Uh, Akira Tozawa would get the win in this match with a caption German suplex on Masaki Mochizuki in 21 minutes and 23 seconds. In no case you were waiting to hear my my opinion of this. This is a different feeling six man tag than what we're used to in the Mania Weekend one, but I loved it. I felt like that this was such an important match that, and, and this goes back into. Tozawa and Mochizuki's rivalry and how much how up I was for that match last week kiss. this is the first time that kiritozawa gets the capture German on Misaki Mochizuki is in this match so like that was like a big moment I was like oh he got both arms this time because during the title match Misaki Mochizuki was able to weasel his arm out and kick out uh the capture and then and uh, and then on the night before uh would go for it but was not able to hit the capture German suplex so he hit it clean and for me, like, that was a big thing for me in this match, both live and rewatching it.
2: I need that star rating, Mike.
1: Four and a half stars.
2: I watched this match twice. I was just really captivated by it, because it's, you know, low-key and Tozawa and a, a stage of Hulk I really like, and then Pac, Ricochet, Mochizuki. I mean, these are my guys. If I was building a six-man tag. Uh, probably four of these guys are in it, no matter the circumstances, between Pac, Ricochet, Mochizuki, and Tozawa. And Key and Hulk were nice additions to the fray. I came away watching this match the first time, and I I kind of paused for a second after the finish. I was like, "Was that? Did I just watch a five star match?" And then I realized, well, I had to think about it. So no, it's four and three quarters. And like I said, I watched the show on a Friday night. I had a few days before we recorded to to kind of let it sink in. I couldn't stop thinking about this match, and I rewatched it, which I never I never really immediately re-watched things. It's like I. I don't know. I gotta gotta watch that again, and I watched it again, and I had the same thought: Is that a five star match? And then I realized, no. I thought about it. It's four and three quarters. So I went four and three quarters on it. It might be to this point my number two match in the history of the promotion. I I just, it this was all action. I mean, this was such strong wrestling for 21 minutes, where everything flowed together, it seemed like every spot was perfect, you had Loki and Pac going at it, there was great moments of Loki and Ricochet, and then obviously Loki and Masaki Mochizuki just beating the piss out of each other, you had great stuff with Hulk and Mochizuki and Tozawa and Mochizuki, this just worked. This, I I love this. This is my favorite six-man tag drag at USA. It's done up to this point. It's one of my favorite matches in the history of the promotion. I thought the world of this. I went four and three quarters on it.
1: it. It It's something where it's a different style than most six-man tag matches in that most of the six-man tags usually deviate into a huge sprint, like partway through where it's just move, move, move. This one had like this tremendous section like the first third of the match where it's ricochet playing babyface in peril and this is like one of the first real times i watching ricochet after he turned face after the run with spike mohicans and blood warriors where i'm like that's an exceptional babyface in peril where just the mad Blanky team and loki just teed off on him for a good solid five to six minutes just tremendous stuff here and it just is like it's a shame we never got like a true mochizuki versus loki match because those two when they were together it was just magical. And the way that Loki kind of ingratiated himself into Matt Blanky, like there was the moment where they had, where Hulk and Akira had him up for a double spine buster. And then Loki hits a springboard kick on it, on them. And it just looks absolutely brutal. And it's just like, this is the good stuff. Like this is the thing that like this weekend badly needed this match to deliver. And it absolutely did. And it was something that was so remarkable Considering how the promotion will change immediately after this show, going into the next weekend, that this is kind of like a nice stamp on what the first four shows of the first third of 2012 was.
2: Yeah, It this was just—I just loved this match. It was really—it's the only thing you can say it was really good. I mean, every moment of this match seemed to matter. I loved everyone's participation. I loved everybody's role in it. I just—it was great. It's also—it's one of the last great low-key matches. You know, I'm—I'm I'm someone that. I think it's pretty well-versed and low-key even to this day. I still like watching his stuff when it makes tape. And, you know, he's got this match. He's got the Kota Ibushi match from October 2012. And then the three-way with uh, Ibushi and Devitt at the Dome in 2013. And then, you know, there's... He had a match with Rey Mysterio at Jersey All-Pro in November of 2015 that I remember watching and going... That was fine. And then there were people that were. I, I think that got match of the year first place votes and the Voice of Wrestling match of the year poll that year. I think that's a big Saguna Kata match is Ray versus Loki. I wasn't crazy about it, but I am the high man on Loki versus Sammy Callahan from AAW in 2017. I championed that match. I love it. I thought it was the best old school style match you could possibly do in the 21st century. And then Loki had a match with Phoenix that I really liked in MLW in 2018. But we're talking about. At, you know one of the, the last great 10 low key matches maybe and this is at the top of the list this was just marvelous
1: and it's just how these guys worked that did it in the way that low key was such an outlier on the previous shows that he was doing his own thing but then you suddenly ingratiate himself into this match that has a very distinct style that you will be you will be pointed out as not being a part of the style you know like you could either do this kind of match or you can't but low key thrived and it's it's a frustrating thing with low key being low key. That I guess this is where it is time to say this. This is low key's last match in Dragon Gate USA up until the final week in the shows.
2: Yeah, which I keep on forgetting about. Yeah, so just to run a tally, it is low key's last Dragon Gate USA show. It is Sabu's last Dragon Gate USA. So Dragon Gate USA. So. Dragon Gate USA show it is so let me let me let me get a cleaner take of this. I'm like you don't have to edit this out but just to be clear Loki Sabu Pak Masato Yoshino and BB Hulk are done with Drangate USA after this show, as well as Bobby Fish. Now, Fish and Loki hang on through the summer months wrestling and evolve, but they do not wrestle on it USA shows ever again. So think about that loss. Think about the talent that you are losing there where you have Loki and... BB Hulk and Pac. That is half of your main event gone. You have Sabu, who was an outsider, but was un, you know wrestled enough in this promotion to where I feel like he is worth mentioning. You have Bobby Fish, who was being built up as one of the future stars of this company, and you have Masato Yoshino, who wrestled on every single show from the debut show with the exception of Open the Southern Gate. He wrestled on. Every single show. He is one of your tag champions, and he does not wrestle in Dragon USA ever again. This is the definitive point. You know, talent dropped off after the first anniversary show. Talent dropped off after WrestleMania weekend 2011. Talent never recovers after WrestleMania weekend 2012. The next shows we're going to talk about, three Japanese guys on the next Dragon Gate USA weekend. It's Yamato, it's Shima, it's Akira Tozawa. No one else
1: it's i mean we are coming towards the end of the promotion we are in the slide now the promotion just i mean you look at this like loki goes and jumps to new japan within the next month and he quickly gains the iwgp junior heavyweight title at that at that 40th anniversary show but this is the the version they had at uh wrestling dotaku and fukuoka Goes and has a perfect block performance in best of super juniors before losing to Ryusuke Taguchi and then defeating Ryusuke Taguchi after that final, defeating him at Dominion at Bodymaker Osaka. And he has a pretty solid life for the remainder of his time, <laughs> you know. I mean, like, Loki is now going to New Japan. We'll talk about how it'll be, it's a funny thing how Loki got himself out of New Japan but by the end of 2013, by the beginning of 2013, but that's it, he's gone and he'll only come back because. When we get to 2014, who boy, the state of that promotion then, Case. who boy. But we still have one last thing bef- that Loki does before we say goodbye.
2: Oh, thank God. I was afraid you were going to skip over this. Go ahead, Mike.
1: Oh, God, I would never skip over a Sheriff Loki book report. Loki is at a loss for words. He wants to face Pac again. He then gives a book report talking about Ricochet stepping up. Does not make a lot of mentions about Masato, uh, uh, Oh sorry, uh Masaki Mochizuki. I was really hoping he was he was gonna say, This was just like when I watched you in W A R no, we also g- <laughs> in foul arts.
2: <laughs> you mentioned it. He says he wants another match with Pac. He says he wants to rec- wrestle Ricochet. He does not want Masaki Mochizuki's smoke, and I don't blame him. He met his match with Masaki Mochizuki and specifically doesn't mention him in the post-match promo. <laughs> he wants Pac. He wants Ricochet. I get it. I would, too. Loki. No, thank you. When it comes to Masaki Mochizuki. and I'm glad you picked up on that as well. That that man is absent from the post match promo.
1: He does not want the 50 year old man smoke. <laughs> and really, and really, uh, so, so I'll talk about this because I know he does not listen to this. Uh, we, we were doing something on the E Patreon a couple weeks ago where we were where I basically devised a draft game, but it was not gonna be like a straight draft game. It was you could draft people, you can form an alliance. Or you could outright do a talent trade. And somehow we we went on that they were surprised I did not talent trade for Misaki Mochizuki. And then Aaron Bentley was trying to think, like, I don't think I could beat up Misaki Mochizuki. He's like, well, well, I did trade for Sumi Yokosuka. His last name is Mochizuki. No relation. And he's like, I don't think I could beat him up either. And then he tries to look up a Mochizuki where he thought he could beat up.
2: <laughs>
1: it took him a long time to find a Mochizuki that he thought he could actually win a fight with. Including thinking about trying to fight a 17th century a Japanese poet who her last name is Mochizuki, but then she also trained like her own fleet of ninjas. She's like I can't take that either. I'm not going to mess with that. So That's that's, th- 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 that's tough. why I mean,
2: I... AB is someone that I would not want to get into a fight with. He does look like he has a lot of pent-up aggression and rightfully so, and I would not want to be on the other side of that. But he might have met his match with Mochizuki, much like Loki.
1: Yes, yes. Loki then says DG USA is a proving ground. For the sport of pro wrestling, this shit exists. You you want to do it like this, we fight you sign the line, you, you get into the ring like men, and you have matches. And it just was like very much like the most low key promo that could ever low key. And that was it for Mercury Rising twenty twelve. That was it for low key in Dragon Gate. That was it for BB Hulk and Dragon Gate. That was it for Masato Yoshino in Dragon Gate. And that was it for the Mania weekend.
2: Mike, are you ready to hear what comes next?
1: Oh, I can't think of anything mo- that I'm looking forward to more than talking about the next show.
2: After shows at the end of March, we will move to the end of July, and July 28th, 2012, DGUSA Untouchable 2012 in Taylor, Michigan. And we get the following matches we get John Davis versus Jake Manning, Chuck Taylor versus Rich Swan, the Super Smash Bros versus The Scene, Ricochet versus Yamato. Derek Rise and Nate Mattson versus the DUF. Mike, we also get Masada versus Pinky Sanchez and the.
1: Hold, 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 hold. You mean Masada? You, you mean uh, Nozawa wrong guy's tag team partner in Tokyo Gurantai, right? Most assuredly, they brought him over for this, right? No, Mike.
2: I mean the worst wrestler ever, Masada.
1: We also get
2: on on the bright side. This promotion
1: is so dumb. This promotion's gotten so gets so dumb in like, in like such a quick, like within the next show. Like this is going like, oh hey, we've Loki. Now you have fucking Masada. Have fun, you idiot. But
2: Masada was like. Masada was a name at this point in time. He's he's the CCW World Heavyweight Champion, I believe. Uh, Mike, there's in November of 2012, there's a Masada versus Davey Richards match on CCW. We might have to review that for this show, or at least put it behind the paywall somehow. But we do get Masada versus Pinky Sanchez. And then luckily, the final two matches are El Generico and Samurai Del Sol versus AR Fox and Shima, and the Freedom Gate tile match between Gargano and Akira Tozawa. So things get rough quick. This is a show with Jake Manning, with Derek Rise, with Masada versus Pinky Sanchez. There is not a lot to like on this show.
1: Yep. We have... This will be the eight... This, the countdown to the end of DGUSA after this show is at 18. There are 18 more Dragon Gate USA shows in case... We go from such high highs. Your second favorite match in DGUSA history, to a show with Masada on it.
2: It's insulting. I mean, my feelings are hurt.
1: Oh, and I just looked at what's going to be the show after that. Oh boy, we're going to get into some stuff immediately. The, 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 this is not just like that they pull up out of show. the show. The, we're in the spiral, baby. This is it.
2: Mike, that's all I've got. I'm so upset that I have to watch Masada versus Pinky Sanchez next week.
1: Oh, wait until you get to see... What you gonna watch with Masada the week after? I that?
2: know it's coming. I don't want to talk about it right now, though.
1: All right, that's gonna do it for this week's Open the VoiceGate rewind and rewatch. Thank you all for listening. Uh, this is we're now. We we will we appreciate all well wishes and keeping us in your thoughts over the next eighteen weeks as we are now firmly in the death spiral of DG USA. So you can follow us on Twitter at Open VoiceGate. You can follow Case. Uh, underscore your under Case. Do not mention Masada to him. He, he, he does not want to hear anything about it. And you could follow me on Twitter, at Fujihe of two eyes like Don Fuji. And that's going to do it for this episode, Open the Voice, Gate, Rewind, and Rewatch. We'll be back with you next week as we go to Detroit and we get to have the DG USA debut of Masada. Take care, everyone.